Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, or you may look on page 10 of your bulletin, and the text for this morning is there. I want to welcome all of those that are watching at home on our live stream and everyone in our sanctuary. Thank you for being here. Good to see you. We're continuing our way through Mark, and last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, and um, just kind of as a reminder of Mark's style of things, because it's going to come into play a little bit here this morning as we look at this passage. Mark is a very pithy writer. He is very straight and to the point, uh, kind of remembering that that John Mark was, was sort of using the Apostle Peter as one of his primary sources, if not his primary source then you kind of understand that this sort of fits with Peter's, what we kind of might perceive as Peter's, you know, personality as just sort of being straightforward and to the point. And that is definitely how Mark is. And so as we come to this text, the story of Jesus walking on the water, uh, there are details that Mark doesn't share, but that Matthew and John do. And when we get to those points, we'll look at what those are. Uh, but Jesus, this, this happens immediately after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the, the people there are excited by this, this banquet that Jesus throws that we sort of contrasted with the banquet of Herod the great in which John the Baptist was beheaded, but this one got the people very excited. And so here Jesus is when we pick up in our, our passage, he is, he is pushing the disciples into the boat and saying, uh, time to, time to go guys. So let's look, Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he said to them, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, and and the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him... And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every year about this time, uh, Facebook... Facebook memories pop up on my, my timeline and, and these memories, you know, the ones I'm talking about, like the pictures, like this was, this was six years ago and here's, here's what happened and what you posted on this day six years ago. And it's, it's always about this time that these pictures of a very small baby boy pop up and he is so covered 
with wires and tubes and medical devices and tape that you can you can barely tell that there's a baby even even under there and and like all of these memories just sort of start coming back and flooding back into into my mind and 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 what you can't see in those pictures are are the ICU nurses and the doctors who are just sort of this constant presence there at Le Bonheur and and all of these wires and devices and things are are not only uh, helping helping this baby to to stay alive and to have the vital functions that he needs, but they're feeding all of this information to to all of these caregivers. And in Le Bonheur, when you're in the ICU as a as a baby, you have one nurse who has two patients, which is a remarkable ratio, like a one to two ratio. And this nurse kind of sits in an office between these two these two ICU rooms and and the nurse takes care of just two patients. And so in those pictures and I'm always reminded of this, but even even just to casual observers, like in those pictures what you can see are these just these signs of this struggle that are going on, right? There's just this this struggle that is going on in these pictures and it and it is so very clear that what these pictures are, are pictures of a very, very sick baby, right? But there's also a story there of this healing presence that's always with this sick baby. And other people have had similar experiences with children or with themselves or in, in, in certain circumstances. There's always this, this story of this healing presence that's always with this sick baby. This sick baby. And, and there's clearly a mighty struggle going on. But there's also this mighty presence that's going on. Because all of this, this stuff surrounding this kid is is aiding and giving pointing to the sign of all these this healing work that's happening and and there are times when when we can look around our lives and we can look at at our walk with Jesus and our searching questions that we have and and the problems in our lives that we want solved most of all right the temptations that we want more than anything to be able to escape we can look around at all of that stuff that's swirling around in our lives and all we see is the struggle. And all we see is the sickness. But the gospel says that the the healing presence of Jesus is there. That Jesus is there and he is never far from his people. He is never far from us in the middle of this great struggle that we find ourselves in. He's never far from his people who follow him in faith. Or he's never far from the seeker who is genuinely humbled by the struggle of life and knows that they need something, even if they can't put a name to it knows that they need to, to receive some sort of hope that can only be found outside of themselves at the end of their own strength. That, that those committed to following Jesus might find themselves struggling and even struggling mightily. But Jesus sees our struggle. He sees us and he doesn't leave us alone.
He draws near to us. And so much of the gospel, so much of God's redemptive plan, as we've, we've talked about throughout the summer and now continuing in the fall through Mark, so much of what I'm seeing in how God operates in his people is him drawing near to us. Him in some way becoming proximate to his people. Either relationally or in this case, literally drawing near to the disciples. But in all cases, and I want to look at it in three ways in this morning's text. He draws near to us in prayer. He draws near to us in presence. Then he draws us near to his purpose. So he draws near to us in prayer. He draws near to us in presence. And he draws us near to his purpose. Let's kind of look at these things one at a time. Verse 45 says... Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he d- dismissed the crowd. They had just fed the 5,000. They'd worked this great miracle, this very spectacular miracle with this very, you know, tan- uh, tangible, material benefit to the people. They, they ate this great uh, banquet together where everyone ate and was full. And John, in his gospel, in chapter 6, verse 15, adds this, adds this detail that Mark doesn't. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In other words, Jesus here knows when to make an exit, right? He knows when to, to leave the stage. And he gets the, you get this sense of like immediately he made the disciples get into the boat, is what it says. He, he pushed them into the boat. You kind of get this sense that he is shoveling, shoving the disciples into the boat saying, okay, guys, good times. See you later. Have fun crossing the lake. I'll see you on the other side. And he's, he is out there waiting in the water, kind of pushing the boat off from the shore as they, as they take off. And there, you know, this is somewhat speculation where you can kind of gather a little bit that, that this, maybe the disciples were getting caught up in this furor and this fervor to, to make Jesus king, that, that he wants to spare the disciples this sort of misplaced messianic excitement that the crowds are, are working themselves up into because their motivation wasn't to, to have a Messiah that Jesus was going to be, but their motivation was to have a Messiah that would overthrow Rome and liberate the, the land, this geopolitical Messiah that would give them their freedom. And so off the disciples go without him across the lake to Bethsaida. And off Jesus goes to pray alone. And so in that way, Jesus draws near to his disciples in prayer. And there the disciples are going off in one direction and Jesus turns and heads back inland into another, off to another direction to pray. And verse 46 says, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When Jesus retreats to pray in the, in the gospels, there's usually something going on. There's some, something has happened in his ministry or he's reached some turning point or, or, or checkpoint in his ministry life, right? He, he retreats to pray often in times of crisis. Uh, and if you want to think about, um, or, or in turning points of his ministry. So two examples of that might be the garden of Gethsemane, right? There's no greater time of crisis for Jesus in, in prayers. He retreats to pray and the disciples are over here and he goes off by himself. 
Or that time in Mark, remember when he takes the disciples up onto the hillside and he is commissioning them to go out and be his agents in the world, uh, working for uh, representing him on their on this mission field that he is sending them out to is, would be kind of like a turning point in his ministry, sort of a next step, right? But this idea of Jesus retreating to prayer, I think it comes from, from something that, that reminded me of like an old preacher's tale that gets told a lot uh, about a group of climbers. And I think one of them was a, was, a, was a pastor. Apparently that's how this story is handed down from preacher to preacher, right? And they climbed, they were in Switzerland and they climbed this, this mountain um, called, let me see what it is. The Weisshorn or the Weisshorn, that would, that would be it, the Weisshorn. They climbed the Weisshorn mountain in, in the Alps in Switzerland and it was kind of like the stormy day, but they were climbing on the sheltered side of the mountain. So they were sheltered from the wind and the storm and they, they had a good climb and they made it almost to the, to the summit and they were there at the summit ready to, to summit the mountain and, and in sort of the thrill of, of their accomplishment and the anticipation of the view that awaited them if you can imagine such a view there in the Swiss Alps and and the triumph of having made it caused them to forget totally this gale wind that was blowing all around them. And one of the climbers kind of sprang up onto the summit and he was almost blown completely over the edge if his guide hadn't just grabbed him and pulled him back down very quickly. And and the guide said to him, on your knees, you are only safe here on your knees. And I think Jesus, Jesus retreats to prayer in times of crisis and in turning point times. He retreats to prayer because he knows that for him and for us as well, that on his knees is the safest place to be. That being on his knees is the best place for him to be. And, and after just this zeal of the crowd and, and the exhaustion of just the unrelenting ministry pace of life that Jesus was experiencing. And remember last week it said they didn't even have time to eat because all these people were coming to him. That for Jesus being near to his heavenly father in prayer recharged him, refreshed him, prepared him. But then it also propelled him back out into ministry. And if, and if anything, when I look at prayer, when I think about prayer, if anything, I think about prayer with this sort of just nagging sense of guilt as something that I just, you know, I haven't done enough of, or I haven't done well enough, or I I do it poorly in kind of the middle of a lot of distraction. But what would it take for me to look at prayer as a resource for my edification and and equipping and being propelled back into the ministry instead of a hammer for my conscience? Because right now I see prayer more as a hammer to my conscience because I don't do it enough or well enough rather than a resource to be tapped or a, a, a place of refreshment to go to. And after sending the disciples away, Jesus sort of took stock of himself and his ministry and where he was at that moment. And I think he found that he was tired. Remember, Jesus is is the son of God. He is divine, but he is also fully human and he got tired. And so 
being weary, he recognized that he needed something. And so he went where he knew the thing that he always needed would be to his heavenly father. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, says the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. <laughs> That's good news for, for stumbling, tripping prayers, right? That the criteria, the, 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 re, the requirement for, for praying is your weariness, is your stumbling, is your distraction. Like that is what you need to come to God with. Those are the very things that fuel our prayers, that we pray about, that we pray in, that when we are weary, we come to our heavenly father in all of our mess, weary of life not making sense, weary of, of fighting your past, weary of fretting over your future, weary of, of seeing what others have and wondering why you can't have the same thing. Weary of waiting. Prayer is not, a, is not a simple, you know, let go and let God kind of trite platitude. It's not a magic lamp that you rub. But prayer is coming to the Father as you are, knowing his will is for your good and knowing that he is good. And that's the mindset and the state into which Jesus draws near to us in prayer. Because we're not told what he was praying for, but I think he was doing what he's currently doing now in heaven, which is praying for us, praying for his disciples, praying for his people, praying for the ministry that is on his shoulders that will benefit us. He draws near to us in prayer. He draws near to us in presence. 47 and 48 of our text. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Like, if you want to imagine it, there is, I think there's a beautiful scene to be painted in your mind's eye as you read just this sort of pithy uh, just description that Mark gives us of what's going on. That there is, there's Jesus on the mountainside praying and he has been praying long into the evening and, and the moon has risen up over the lake and is even now just reflected on the water as the water itself is, is turbulent with this cooling air that, that falls down from the mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee down into this basin that the sea is in some 600 feet below sea level. This cooling air falling down and causing the, the winds to blow and the waves to be high and you can see the waves reflected in the moonlight as Jesus looks out across the sea and there, there way in the distant middle of the sea and John says about three miles out is this speck of a boat 
And you can see that the sails are down and the oars are out, but the boat isn't going anywhere, even as the oars are moving back and forth, straining against the wind. There are his disciples, his beloved ones, the ones that he has handpicked, obedient to his command to get in the boat and go across the sea, making no progress in their obedience whatsoever. His disciples are obedient, making no headway under their own strength. And Jesus looks up from his prayer and sees those who were struggling because of their obedience to him. (laughs) And he is propelled out to minister to his his poor, soggy, struggling uh, disciples. When I was a kid, uh, we had a sailboat that we kept out at Pickwick Lake. And this was a, it was a decent sized sailboat. We could spend the night on it. There were four of us. We could all spend the night. It was 22 feet long. I don't know why I remember that, but it was 22 feet long. And I, being the oldest son, became the first mate by uh, default. And every, and so if there was a sail and we had two, we had two sails. If there was a sail to be raised or lowered, I was the guy who did it. And every once in a while, I just remember my dad for like no apparent reason. I guess there was a reason, but he would, he would yell, preparing to come about. And then a few seconds later, coming about. And then the boat would like turn really slowly. And so I don't know what we were preparing for, but we were, we were well prepared to, to come about and like, that was about as exciting as it got on Pickwick Lake in a sailboat. Um, the most exciting, you know, the most exciting thing that ever happened was, was coming about in the, in the boat. And most of my experiences ranged from extreme boredom to mind-numbing extreme boredom. And, you know, there was always some Christopher Cross song playing too. I don't know why, but... But one thing we never had to do was paddle that 22-foot sailboat because we had an outboard motor, thankfully. But here are the disciples. It was about the fourth watch of the night, so which means it was about between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m. And they had been out on this miserable lake all night long, and they would have welcomed some of the boredom of my sailing experience, uh, I'm sure. But they were making headway painfully, it says, painfully, for the wind was against them. Jesus had real empathy for his disciples in this moment. If they hadn't obeyed, where would they most likely be? They would be asleep on land somewhere, right? They would be asleep in their houses, perhaps. They certainly wouldn't be cold and tired and wet and miserable, futilely kind of struggling on in this course that they've been set on. Like disobedience or not obeying Jesus in his call might spare us some hardships. It might make life easier for a time because there is discomfort. It would spare us from the discomfort of, of going where he commands. And there is a cost to, to biblical obedience. There really is a cost to biblical living that, that there's a cost to submitting your life to his holy standards. That, that this, isn't, this isn't the call to be perfect, 
But this is the call to fight sin, right? This isn't a call to be sinless, but this is a call to make war against the inclinations of sin that still live in our own hearts. That we are at the same time justified and saved and righteous in his sight, and yet at the same time we are still sinners on this side of glory, right? We are called to fight lust and greed and gluttony. We were called to fight the urge to live a self-centered, self-sufficient life. We were called to live in this transparent community of the church with others. Like there's a cost to all of that. Those are, those are hard things to do. As the culture becomes more and more post-evangelical, there will be more cost down the road. There will be more and more cost as the culture continues to, to move in the direction that it's currently moving in. There may be social and political costs. There might be opportunities that we just have to say no to because there are ethical requirements that we just can't be involved with. There may be doors that are closed that would once have been open. Who knows? But there's a, there's a cost to obedience. There's a cost to serving others. To, to loving your neighbor as yourself has a cost. That, that it costs us vacation or free time to spend serving others. It costs us financially to support those who are out preaching the gospel in faraway places. There's a cost, right? Verses 48 and 50 says, he meant to pass them by or pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So there's a little bit of confusion about what does this mean that he meant to pass them by, but they saw him. And in the, in the Greek version, this is boring, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, there is a word that is, that is the same word that is used for when God passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock, right? To display his glory to Moses. In other words, this same word that is being used for passing them by is used here in Mark's gospel. And so a lot of scholars think that what this means is Jesus didn't intend to kind of like sneak past them on the water, but he intended for them to see him in the same way that God intended Moses for him to see his glory, right? This is a Jesus putting himself and his, his power and his presence on display, like he didn't want them to miss him in the middle of their struggle. That being so bent towards the oars of obedience, they miss the one that called them to obedience. Like we do that, right? We get so bent on our performance that we forget the identity that drives our activity. And that identity is rooted in this person, Jesus, who's even now showing his disciples again who he is as God's son. His presence here makes all the difference. His presence comforts them in their fear. It comforts them in their progress or lack of it. It also calms the turbulent waves that they're going through on the sea, right? His presence makes progress possible. John says in his account, when Jesus gets in the boat, immediately they were at their destination. 
Like it doesn't, doesn't, I don't know if the boat just sort of like magically, you know, poofed over to the shore or what, but it says immediately they were at their destination. But anyway, the progress that they were trying to make in their own struggle and under their own strength was suddenly made because of the presence of Jesus. That Jesus moves near to his disciples in the midst of their struggle. And guess where Jesus brings them? into more ministry, into contact with more needy people. He draws us near to his purpose. Verse 53 through 56. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. One of the things that, that Matthew records in this account that Mark doesn't record, and remember, Peter is one of Mark's main sources, so it could be that Peter wanted to just not draw attention to this little episode for whatever reason, uh, but is, is the, the, the idea of Peter getting out of the boat, right, and walking on the water towards Jesus in Matthew 14, starting in verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, that's Peter, was afraid and began to sink And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And Peter here is confronted with the limits of his own faith. Even though he's quick to to jump out of the boat in faith, he he is then very quickly confronted with the limits of that faith. Before we are drawn deeper into his purpose and mission, we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to recognize that we're in that boat straining against the oars, right? We have to recognize that our circumstances really are terrifying, legitimately so. Walking on water might seem like like some, you know, flannel graph sort of Sunday school thing, But if you think about the waves and the way water moves and behaves, you are used to walking on flat surfaces that don't go up and down randomly, right? Here Peter is getting out of the boat and suddenly he realizes, oh, my circumstances are legitimately terrifying, legitimately hard, legitimately difficult. And he begins to sink. Before we are drawn deeper into his purposes and mission for us, we have to understand that, again, we are without the resources to deal with what is going on around us, and we need Jesus to draw us into his presence before we can go out and bring others into his presence. It's easier to offer Jesus's help to others than it is to receive Jesus's help ourselves. That it's it's, it's easier to, 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 to thinking, thinking that Jesus can help other people is easier than thinking that Jesus can help me in the circumstances in which I find myself, right? Because I know the details. I know how it makes me feel. I know the fear that I experience. I know the anxiety that I experience. I know the sadness that I experience. 
But it's easier for me to tell you that Jesus can help you in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through than it is for me to receive the help that Jesus is offering me and to walk with him by faith in the midst of that. But in order to be drawn into his purpose and mission, we have to first ourselves be the objects of his purpose and mission. Jesus' mission is to heal and to help and to empower needy sinners to be agents of his healing and helping and empowering. That he, he brings the disciples straight from their helpless struggle against the wind into contact with the broken masses of humanity that are now running out to meet him where they are. I was reminded this week of, of something that happened a few years ago uh, between the comedian uh, Pete Davidson, who's a Saturday, it was a, I think he's still in the Saturday Night Live cast, but I haven't watched Saturday Night Live since Farley, so I don't know. Um, but, but Pete Davidson was on Saturday Night Live and he, he mocked who was then uh, the congressman-elect Dan Crenshaw uh, because you know, Davidson was motivated by his political differences in what Dan stood for. And he, he mocked this disability that Dan incurred in Afghanistan as he lost an eye to uh, a roadside bomb or an explosion in Afghanistan. And there was this great public backlash against Davidson for, for mocking Crenshaw over this. And it was so intense that, that he fell into this deep, deep depression. And he, he tweeted or something out this following statement. He says, this is Pete Davidson. I really don't want to be on this earth anymore. I'm doing my best to stay here for you, but I actually don't know how much longer I can last. All I've ever tried to do was help people. Just remember, I told you so. This is this hopeless kind of uh, statement that is very alarming, obviously. Privately, Crenshaw reached out to Davidson with, with kind and gentle words. And this veteran uh, who had every reason to at least ignore this man or blow him off or, or even to pile on uh, and to retaliate against him, gently reminded Pete Davidson of his value as a person, his value as a human being. And he said to him, God put you here for a reason. It's your job to find that purpose and you should live that way. Just simple words, kind of expected words, right? Nothing revolutionary there, but encouraging words, kind words, and that next Veterans Day weekend, Crenshaw and Davidson met live on the air on Saturday Night Live. And at the end of whatever it was that they did, Davidson thought the microphones were off and he leans over and you can hear him say to Dan Crenshaw, you are a good man. And there's this kind of moment that happened. And I don't know if Crenshaw is a Christian or not. I've been, I really have been meaning to read his book. But, but that's the kind of reconciliation that comes about by people who themselves have experienced the reconciling grace of God. Jesus' activity in heaven is to, is to even now draw near to his people in prayer. That that's what he's doing for us right now. Jesus' spirit has drawn near to his people with his enabling presence. 
his helping presence, his, his sin-fighting power, his struggling against the wind and the waves uh, strength. And Jesus is calling us, he's calling you, he's calling his people into a deeper participation in his mission in the world. He is calling us to participate in his mission as those who have themselves been the objects of his mission, as those who have been reconciled to God by his grace. And the main, the, the, the only means of that reconciliation is illustrated for us this morning in the Lord's Supper. It's illustrated for us every week as we approach this table, the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This table is not set, as I say every week, for perfect people or even good people. This table is set for sinners. This table is bread for hungry beggars to be received by grace through faith so that you and I we hungry beggars can go out and bring more hungry beggars to this table. That that is what the presence of Jesus does in us and through us and for us, all by grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, how we need that grace. Oh, how we need that mercy. Oh, how we need the forgiveness that you have provided for us. Even as we struggle through deep and turbulent waters, even as we, we struggle through real, real crises and real issues that, that hurt, uh, we need your helping hand upon us. We need your enabling grace to propel us into ministry. We need to remember that, that you are praying for us and that we are bid to come and pray to our heavenly father who knows us and loves us, knows and, lo- knows and understands what we are going through, sees us in our struggle and moves towards us in nearness. Lord, thank you that this table is a reminder of just how far you will go in order to draw near to your people. That you would offer your own son as the sacrifice to to bring a, a sinful people into right relationship with a holy and just God. Lord, we thank you for the mercy that is set before us in this table. And even as we approach it this morning, we pray that you would use your spirit to nourish us and equip us through these simple elements, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.